Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. This month we are covering what happened in February 2022. We've got a load of different topics to cover. We usually try to group these by theme, but there's just a lot of different little things have happened basically. So we're covering stuff on fees, trafficking, I'm going to mention investor visas briefly, citizenship, asylum, age assessment, no recourse to public funds, and a couple of things on appeals at the end as well. Right, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. We'll start with the Supreme Court's decision to reject a challenge to the £1,000 cost of citizenship for children, uh, specifically the fee to register a non-British child as British. And For example, if they're born in the UK, they live here for the first 10 years of their life, they have the right to citizenship. Catch, uh, as is notorious, the Home Office charges £1,012 to process these registration applications as against an estimated processing cost of to the Home Office itself of £372. What the claimants in this case argued was that this uh, fee is so high that it effectively does away with the statutory rights that these children have to become British if they meet the requirements. Uh, but the Home Office, uh, in a nutshell, said no. And uh, Colin, you wrote up the case, so I'll leave you to explain why they said no. Yeah, it's um, it's a really disappointing decision, this one. Although, at the same time, not hugely surprising, because we've kind of seen the Supreme Court um, over the last year or so um, adopt quite a sort of small-c conservative approach to things. And um, I think at the heart of the reasoning here is that the the claimants conceded, I think because of um, quite strong authority on this, that there's no common law or constitutional right to citizenship as such, at least in this situation where you've got a child who's um, seeking to, to, to register as British. Um, I think there's some really interesting arguments about that. And this whole idea of kind of constitutional rights um, is is a bit novel. It's been quite criticised by academic writers because it's it's very fuzzy and unclear what what might or might not amount to such a right. But in the what's known as the Unison case, that's the um, the case in which the Supreme Court struck down the high level at which employment tribunal fees had been set as basically interfering with the constitutional right of access to a court. You know that that that's the kind of leading case on this stuff. And basically, the the Supreme Court held Unison didn't apply here, and therefore the Secretary of State was entitled to set the fees at the level they want. That's not necessarily the end of things. I mean, there's there's quite a broad campaign on this with support across the political spectrum. Um, but basically, the Supreme Court is sort of saying, not quite in terms, that this is really a political matter rather than a, a legal matter. So the battle has to go on, but outside the courts. There is one legal matter still on the table, though, right? Because in the lower courts, um, they found that when the government set the registration fee, the government breached its legal duty to take into account the best interests of children. I don't think that finding was challenged or or canvassed in the Supreme Court, so it still stands. But I think our feeling is that in practice, that finding doesn't necessarily mean lower fees. Yeah, it's kind of almost victory, I think, that kind of thing. It's And you, you do see this with um, quite a lot of sometimes quite prominent judicial reviews by quite prominent organisations where you know a failure to have regard to something leads to a technical victory but all that happens afterwards is the 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 responsible you know, sector of state or decision making authority turns around and says okay well I've, I've considered that carefully now i've taken that into account and i still reach the same decision and that yeah it, it doesn't really substantively advance matters so yes absolutely that you know the that that victory in the high court remains but it it probably 
of itself isn't going to lead to a change. As ever, we shall see. Um, Also, on the subject of fees, there's a new scheme for foreign citizens in the armed forces. Uh, Some of them will no longer have to pay the fees for settlement, uh, indefinite leave to remain, um, so long as they've served in the armed forces for six years or been discharged with an injury. This has been announced by the Home Office and Ministry of Defence, uh, not not yet implemented, but it is coming. Uh, Sarah Pinder covered it for us, and she points out that foreign soldiers qualify for settlement after serving for four years, but they'll only get this fee waiver after six. Uh, so that's not ideal. Uh, and there's nothing in the announcement about family members. Um, so maybe they'll be covered for waivers in the detailed policy, but if not, that's still several two and a half grand fees maybe to pay for for spouses and children and stuff. Nevertheless, so far as it goes, it's welcome developments. Um, in the past, we've we did a whole episode about this um, on the podcast. There's been a lot of these soldiers and other armed forces members uh, basically priced out of being able to remain in the UK after their service, and they, they had to go back to Fiji and, and countries like that. Yeah, it's um, I, I, it's great news for those affected. Um, it's, it's one of the things that leaves me with slightly sort of conflicted feelings, though, because it, it's very much kind of carving out exceptions for people perceived as good migrants and, and leaving it in place for the others. So, yeah, I mean, it's just good news. Depending on the implementation, I haven't picked up that thing about the six years, four years thing, actually, but um, depending on whether it actually is effective, it's certainly good news for those who, who benefit from it. Human trafficking, then, there's been a major court of appeal decision on criminal prosecutions of trafficking victims. Um, basically, it reinstates a possible avenue of appeal for people who are convicted of crime, but they're then officially confirmed as a victim of trafficking through the official recognition process, uh, trafficking modern slavery process. The criminal courts had previously taken the position that you could no longer argue that prosecuting people like this was an abusive process. It's a criminal law concept and and the people could only rely on the defense against prosecution that's in the modern slavery act. Um, But uh, things have moved on. The European court of human rights has weighed in very critical of the prosecution of trafficking victims as well. It might be. um, And that seems to have caused the court of appeal criminal division to reconsider this. So abuse of process, as an argument, is back in play for trafficking victims who have criminal convictions. As I say, not strictly speaking immigration law. This is criminal law, not our uh, but an important development to be aware of. The case R versus AAD, AAH and AAI, 2022 EWCA, CRIM 106. Yeah, this one's another good news one, isn't it? I, I, this is sort of um, uh, mea culpa as well. I, I, when when the um, Strasbourg case came out, the VCL and AN against the UK case, I couldn't see that it seemed that relevant because the law had changed since then. There was um, and you know defence had been added to statute, so things seem to have moved on. But actually, I think you know with the benefits of this um, this write up, I can see that um, there, there really were some ongoing issues which this 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 case really helped with. So um, yeah, interesting one that. Then to the upper tribunal, a case which had to do with legal challenges to home office trafficking policies. It involved an Albanian lady, SV, who was a confirmed human trafficking victim. And she wanted to challenge the policy that makes it harder to get a long-term grant of permission to stay in the UK compared to a short-term grant. Um, She said that having a higher threshold, a higher legal test to get a longer grant of permission uh, was contrary to the European Convention Against Trafficking, ECAT. 
the Home Office said, um, well, the Home Office argued that in light of recent Supreme Court decisions, that sort of conservative turn we've talked about, um, the trafficking convention couldn't be relied upon at all in adjudicating if uh, a policy or elements of a policy is lawful. The tribunal didn't go that far. It said that ECAT is relevant. Uh, but in this specific challenge to this particular issue about length of grants of permission, uh, there was no breach of ECAT. Uh, so the uh, policy to that extent survives intact. The case uh, SV 2022-UKUT-239-IAC. Yeah, I've, I've got a bad feeling about this one. I, the, you know, Courts of Appeals reached similar conclusions, I think. Um, sort of been vaguely following this, but um, you know, the Supreme Court's been pretty down on the idea that um, treaties can be incorporated, you know, without an explicit sort of statutory provision to that effect. So uh, this remains the law for now. But as I think this was one of our um, new writers, wasn't it? Gabriel Tan wrote this one up for us, and um, as he rightly points out, you know, this is probably not the end of this issue. It may well be going further. Also in February, the investor visa was suddenly closed to new applicants. We devoted the entire last episode of the podcast to the subject, so we'll not dwell on it. But just to recap, uh, to get an investor visa, you needed at least £2 million to invest in uh, company shares or bonds. There have, uh, for some years, been concerns that some of the money produced for this purpose is dodgy in some way, maybe it's being laundered from ill-gotten activities in, in China or wherever it might be. We, we've said before in, in writing and on the podcast that the future of the investor route seemed insecure. Uh, there were hints that maybe it was not long for this world, but the immediate trigger for shutting it down without warning was uh, the Ukraine crisis because Quite a lot of Russians have used this route uh, in the past, um, and it's all tied in with the London laundromat and uh, Russian money and da-da-da-da. So no more investor visa, uh, but people who already have one uh, will get to keep it at least for a few years, but no new applicants. I've always wondered why it exists, really. It's kind of the the idea you can just sort of buy your way in with a great big fat investment. Um, It's always seemed like a sort of strange strange visa type. and I think, to be fair, it's been redesigned somewhat in recent years. So the investments, I think, are a bit more meaningful now than they, they used to be. But it's still a, a sort of basically super rich visa thing. And it's like, well, why, why do they get this kind of you know, general visa type and other people can't? I'd be all in favor of like, um, there used to be a visa until I think, um, God, I think it was 2008, it, it, it was um, finally retired. Uh, boom, boom. It was the uh, retired person's visa, basically, a person of independent means. But uh, I'm all in favour of something like that. But having something at such a high threshold, you know, two million pounds before it closed, um, that um, only the sort of super rich can afford it, just doesn't seem like a particularly attractive way of running your your um, your visa system to me. Well, it no longer is one of the ways we run the visa system. So there we are. Uh, citizenship then for EU nationals specifically, we've previously highlighted that the possibility that the Home Office would refuse to naturalise EU citizens uh, if uh, in the past, before Brexit, uh, they didn't have private health insurance uh, to uh, kind of make their stay comply fully with EU free movement law. And this issue affected uh, EU citizens who were students or homemakers, for example, and not, not working. And the Home Office said in its naturalisation policies, um, changed them in the last couple of years to say that we can refuse people um, citizenship if they didn't have comprehensive sickness insurance, CSI. Although 
there is discretion to give them citizenship anyway. What's now emerged is that since they put this in the naturalization guidance in, I think, May 2020 was the first appearance, almost two years ago, uh, not one person has been refused citizenship on this basis. Uh, Here's Home Office Minister Baroness Williams. We've been monitoring this and we are confident that caseworkers are using the the guidance proactively and fairly. And to date, I'm pleased to say that I'm not aware of anyone having been refused naturalisation solely because they did not have CSI, as the noble lady um, said earlier. So, like, what, what was the point of all that? That's a big question. I mean, the 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 elephant in the room. And we we try not to sort of skip ahead from last month to to the sort of time that we're speaking here. We're doing this kind of in review, but it would be remiss not to mention that literally just this morning there's been a new case on CSI handed down by the Court of Justice of the European Union. It's case of VI against UK, case C dash two four seven slash twenty, holding that um, in very very abrupt terms that NHS access was basically equivalent to CSI. And therefore, that all of this policy, since put in place since 2011, I think it is, um, was basically unlawful and wrong, which is, you know, absolutely nuts. Just the impact this has had on so many people and so much public discussion, so much anxiety and confusion this has caused, as well as financial losses as well, because people have been forced to buy private health insurance as, a, as an alternative, even though they just didn't need it at all. I, I really, I'm really, really cross about this one. But we'll be covering that in more in, in more depth next month. But um, yeah, and it, it, it's all, it all turns out it's, it was all a nonsense all along. But what I, one thing I would point out, though, um, just sort of going back as if we didn't know about this new case, is that what, what they're saying in Parliament about nobody's been refused, what they, what they can't say is how many people didn't apply because they thought they would be refused. So this has presumably stopped quite a lot of people from applying because of the confusion around this, because people have been trying to learn what they can online from free movement and from forums and from other places. And um, yeah, the citizenship fees are huge. So people won't have been willing to take the risk, even though there the didn't look like there was a high risk of refusal. We couldn't say there was none. And, and so people won't have applied. So um, th- this has had, you know, this had a really major impact on a, a lot of people. And the fact that nobody's been refused is, is not really the whole story here. Asylum then. There is an interesting case on protection against removal from the UK, uh, even to a country which is safe for the asylum seeker to go back to. Uh, So this arose in the context of Iraq, which is quite a decentralized country, and basically the Kurdish region in the north, I believe, they won't accept forced returns of asylum seekers from the UK, um, whereas Baghdad will. um, But Baghdad is not safe for a Kurd without an Iraqi state ID card. Um, So the chap involved in this case, he refused to go voluntarily to the Kurdish region. Uh, He couldn't be uh, sent there against his will because the authorities wouldn't cooperate. He could only be forced to be removed to Baghdad. So what do you do in this situation? And the upper tribunal held, well, if you can only enforce removal in circumstances which would breach uh, the person's human rights, his Article 3 rights, uh, then you can't enforce removal. Um, And that's notwithstanding the fact that uh, this chap could live safely in the Kurdish region, um, wasn't a refugee, no breach of human rights if he could be sent directly there, uh, but he can't, so he stays. And the case SA Removal Destination Iraq, Undertakings Iraq, <laughs> 2022 UKT 37 IAC. Uh, so it's an interesting outcome, Colin, although maybe a bit of a niche scenario that won't arise very often again. It, it can come up. I, I think... Th- I'm. 
look at this. I, th- I think the outcome seems inevitable to me um, because you know there's, there's really long-standing authority that the appeal has to be decided as if it's you know happening today or tomorrow. The removal is happening today or tomorrow, and the fact is, I think everybody concedes in this case that if he was removed and the only place he could be removed to was Baghdad, there would be a breach of Article Three. So I, 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 I you know, the, the Home Office argument seems quite cunning at a glance, but I, I just don't think it stands up at all. I think the outcome was was inevitable, although you know, <laughs> I may come to eat those words at some point in the future. I don't know, um, but um, yeah, there are there are other scenarios where it it might potentially apply. Um, so no, it's it's a useful sort of restatement of of basic principles, I think. Another upper tribunal case then, this one on the monitoring of political dissent on Facebook. The case was about an Iranian dissident who posted anti-government things on his Facebook page, uh, which would certainly get him in trouble if the Iranian secret police or whatever uh, were to read those posts. And the question really was, well, would they read them? Um, The tribunal was interested in the technical side i suppose they they heard evidence about what the iranian regime can do in terms of hacking facebook accounts and whose accounts they might be interested in breaking into and its conclusions include well there's no like magic way of seeing into the private facebook account of every iranian citizen no no secret technology or whatever and it would only be individuals of quote-unquote significant interest whose account the government might try to monitor or or hack on an individual basis. Again, there's no magic way of of hacking into an account that the Iranian government has that no one else does, so it would be the kind of usual techniques that scammers have to try and fish people's passwords. Um, You could always add them as a friend, and if they're unwise enough to accept uh, an Iranian agent as a friend, then uh, they'll get in that way. If someone hasn't been singled out for such attention, they can always close the account down and then whatever they posted will be irretrievable by the regime if they were to be sent back. So none of it sounds promising on paper for uh, Iranian asylum seekers or other online distance. Um, but this the guy in the appeal did win um, on the basis that he had um, basically deliberately gone out of his way to associate with Iranian distance, attended protests and got a picture with anti-regime people. Um, and this was enough, uh, the tribunal held, to put him at risk of that targeted individual surveillance of his account. Um, so he wins the asylum appeal, the case XXPJAK, Surplus Activities, Facebook, Iran, CT, 2022, UK, UT, 23, IAC. Yeah, it's an interesting one, this. I, I, I sort of read this through and I, I just, it felt a bit wrong to me. That's not good. <laughs> it's not good ground of appeal, that. <laughs> you need a bit more than that. Um, but, um, you yeah, these kind of cases that we see where the, you, you've got some tribunal judges you know, of a certain background and, and so on trying to imagine what the authorities of another country might or might not do, the security services of another country might or might not do, make me very nervous. Uh, you know, the idea you can make positive findings about that seems seems unreal to me. And you know, just things like, um, you know, I'm sure the Iranians do monitor the diaspora. They probably do have people who kind of... Uh, you know, hang on to these groups and befriend other people and keep an eye on what's going on on the social media groups and, and stuff like that. I haven't got any proof of that because um, I couldn't, you know, I, I've got no access to that stuff. And we, we got some comment from um, Sam Smith and, and Phil Booth. You know, the first thing that they say there, we don't know what we don't know, is is 
quite important. That's really that principle is anathema to judges. You know, they they have this kind of godlike self image, I think, and they they think that they know everything on the basis of the often very limited evidence that's available. And we often see that with with country guidance cases. It's a criticism that goes way way back. But yeah, in the end, this guy wins anyway. Again, I sort of question how you could reach a, a really concrete finding that somebody has pretended their their political beliefs. Um, I, I can see how you could hold that somebody hasn't proven their case as such, perhaps. But to make a positive finding that this guy has totally sort of contrived everything um, does seem remarkable. But you know, I, I didn't see the evidence in the case, so, um, so I'm not going to be too critical of that. Just to flag that there is an updated Somalia country guidance case, uh, important to look at if you're dealing with Somalia asylum claims, uh, OA Somalia, Somalia CG, 2022 UKUT33 IAC. Um, Colin, anything jump out of you from that one? I'm I'm not a big expert in Somalia case. I haven't done any for a while, but this looks like to me like it might be a fairly significant change for some people. So I think if you are doing Somali cases, you're going to need to look at this quite carefully and, and sort of think about it. So um, yeah, big, big sort of red flag for that one. Also, the country guidance case on Sri Lanka, or the most recent country guidance case on Sri Lanka, has uh, survived the Home Office appeal. Uh, that was last year's judgment in KK and RS, Surplus Activities Risk, uh, Sri Lanka CG 2021 UKUT 130 IAC. So uh, the Home Office wanted to appeal against that. A permission has been refused in a brief reported judgment. Um, the Court of Appeal 2022 EWCA Civ 119. Again, important for lawyers with Sri Lankan refugee clients. So the, the Court of Appeal does kind of say, go back and look at the original tribunal judgment for, for citations and such. Yeah, and it's um, uh, our friend Lord Justice Underhill popping up again with another... Um fairly significant court of appeal judgment it's like it's almost like he's become quite liberal which is is that's just not true he, he's not um but he's he's reasonable um, anyway yeah it's interesting when his his name comes up and the the judgments that we see um from him do seem to be attempts at common sense just briefly on age assessments this is where the home office decides whether someone is uh, over or under 18 it's particularly important in the context of immigration detention because unaccompanied children can't be put in detention centres. The policy on age assessments has kind of swung back and forth over the last couple of years um, in terms of how much benefit of the doubt um, people get when they say they're, they're under 18. The Supreme Court eventually ruled in favour of the Home Office's preferred naturally strict approach in the BF Eritrea case last year. So now the department has changed its formal written policy on age assessments in the detention context. And we're kind of back where we started out before the litigation, um, which is uh, a or two senior immigration officers can decide that someone is an adult if, uh, and I quote, their physical appearance and demeanor very strongly suggests they are significantly over 18 years of age and no other credible evidence exists to the contrary. So uh, more people will be treated as adults by the immigration enforcement system is the long and the short of that. Yeah, and um, the recent immigration stats, I, I, I did a sort of, we'll, we'll cover this more next month, I did a kind of analysis of the um, of the asylum system more recently with um, lots of, lots of colourful charts. And um, I didn't include one on age assessments, but there's been a massive spike in the number of um, age assessments in the last year, um, which is presumably due to this kind of, newfound obsession with um with challenging age 
And there's no evidence that there's been an increase in the number of children entering or anything like that, but the number of age assessments or disputed ages has has gone up a lot. So this is having a practical impact in real life. Just a quick note on no recourse to public funds. I imagine most people will be aware of this development by now, but if you aren't, it's it's good times. And basically, there's a sort of a mean-spirited rule that applies to people with permission to be in the UK on a family route as a partner or a parent. Those people can normally apply for settlement after five years, um, but with no right to claim benefits in those five years. If they fall on hard times, they can apply for access to public funds so they can uh, claim benefits. But the mean rule is that they then won't be allowed to settle for 10 years instead of five. And that means paying a lot more money for extensions of their permission to be here, which is pretty tough when you consider the whole reason you've applied for public funds is because you don't have any money. The good news now is that the Home Office has made an announcement. It is suspending the policy of automatically kicking people into this 10-year settlement pathway if they successfully uh, apply for public funds. I think this was in response to legal action. It doesn't, on the face of the policy, it doesn't mean that people in this position definitely get to stay on the five-year track and the position will be reviewed when they next apply for settlement or to extend their permission Um, but they don't automatically go into the 10-year pathway as they had before and that is progress. Yeah, it's, it's really good news, I, uh, assuming that this actually does turn out to be like a real policy rather than a fake policy. But you, you, you attached a, well, just talked about charts a second ago, I do like a good chart, and you've, you've, you've attached a good one to the uh, to that blog post where we can see that this increase in the number of applications for access to public funds massively increases as the pandemic starts, and it's almost back down to normal levels. So it really does look like it's an exceptional thing that people had to apply for it, and therefore surely it's right and proper that they're not, they're not penalised further for it. Um, so you know, very much welcome this. And finally, a couple of notes on appeals. Uh, you may recall the temporary appeal process that the Upper Tribunal put in place at the start of the pandemic, basically dispensing with oral hearings in many cases. That was ultimately ruled unlawful, and the question became, well, if my appeal was decided by a judge without a hearing uh, under this unlawful policy, can I have another go, please? And the Court of Appeal confirms, eh, not necessarily, uh, you, you have to show some unfairness in your individual case. So that is, I suppose, disappointing in principle, although uh, Deborah Revel, who wrote up the case, she points out that the two appellants involved did win the right to another appeal because they could in their individual cases show that the judge had done something unfair. They had, he had overlooked, he or she had overlooked some of their written submissions. Um, so uh, if that applies in other such cases, uh, they can reopen their appeals or not necessarily last. The judgment Hussein and another 2022 EWCA Civ 145. Yeah, this one looks like a spectacular own goal by the tribunal because if the, the point of the policy was to keep things running and um, you know have a nice efficient appeal system and everything and you know there's just a huge number of cases um, that seem to be contested on this and it, it's caused all kinds of problems so yeah it's um, it, it's been a bit of a disaster from start to finish as far as we can see finally there's been a slightly convoluted conversation about witnesses dialing in from abroad to give evidence at first tier tribunal hearings the tribunal recently decided or reiterated maybe that um, you can't just kind of do this willy-nilly because um, on its reading of international law, what, what's going on if someone is, let's say someone's in Nigeria and they appear on video link uh, in the Immigration Tribunal in London as an appellant or a witness, 
that is the UK judicial system operating on the territory of Nigeria. And so there has to be like a diplomatic process to get permission from the Nigerian government. And that was stated in the recent case of Agbabiaka, uh, following the older case of Nair. So what we have now following uh, that case is official guidance from the first year tribunal saying exactly how you can arrange for witnesses to dial in without getting the Foreign Office uh, extremely uh, anxious about it. My reading of the guidance, I mean, I'll admit I didn't read it in, in great detail, but on its face, like it just seems more restrictive than the case law necessarily requires. It, it really tries to kind of put people off doing this at all from dialing in. Like the whole tone of it is very negative. Like, do you really need to do this? Um, and, the, and the process, I mean, the, the process based on the case law is going to be a faff anyway, but um, you have to go to the foreign office and, and uh, it's a whole thing. So people who, who are trying to get witnesses dialing in from overseas will have to read it properly and get the details. But um, yeah, witnesses dialing in from abroad, not flavor of the month in the first tier tribunal. No, um, which is sort of curious because it, it, you know, evidence from abroad is it has very little value when it's on a, a witness statement. Let's face it, and um, has much more value if it can be given live in a kind of useful, um, useful way, and and somebody can be subject to cross examination. I'm struggling to have sort of strong opinions on this one. I, I do try to have strong opinions, but I'm struggling on this one. But I, I thought it was a very interesting post by Eric Fripp on this issue. And I think Eric's line is very much that the tribunal's kind of got this wrong on what international law actually requires. So I, I think, um, you know, if you're in this situation and the evidence seems to have value, then I think um, ha- do have a good look at Eric's post and the um, what, what he signposts there as well, sort of. Um, it's, uh, it, it's worth having a proper think about. Right, that wraps things up for this month. We will be back next month um, when no doubt one of the topics I think we may end up having a special on this is um, is the situation in Ukraine, which we've sort of barely, barely mentioned this month, even though it's been such a prominent thing over the last few days. So hopefully, anyway, that gets you up to date with what's happened in February 2022, and we'll be back next month. Goodbye.